Well, a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at sin entering the world and Paul talking about in Romans 5 that, that death reigned through sin, we're going to look today at what the resurrection did in defeating that. And not just for our eternity's sake, but in our lives. How did Jesus' resurrection defeat sin? How do we understand that from Scripture? That sin feels like one of those things that is ever-present, and we are surrounded by it, and we succumb to it. And so what does it mean that Jesus defeated sin and death, and how does that relate to our lives? How can we have power over sin? The verse on the front of your bulletin is John 8, 34, where Jesus said that, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. It's an interesting concept. But I think that if you examine your own life and look at what sin does to people, that you can see how easily that is played out and... Explain it. I, I, I could not find who I read it from, but uh, I read somewhere one time that, that sin is spiritual insanity. And you think of the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, try, hoping to get a different result or expecting a different result. And so when I think of, of sin in that way and how we become a slave to it, as Jesus said, in that if we let sin take root in our lives, that it provides this lie of control, the lie that Adam and Eve originally fell to, the lie of, of joy that we can somehow provide for ourselves what we are seeking in our hearts, the thing that can only be fulfilled through God. And yet we try ourselves to do it, and the more you sin, the more... It doesn't come true, and those sins get bigger, and it takes over your life. To the point where that is all that matters if you don't deal with it. It just grows and grows and grows. And therefore, you become a slave to it. And I think this is probably most clearly seen in addicts. In that you try a a drug or alcohol or something that your body becomes addicted to, and you are constantly seeking to recreate that first initial feeling. And it takes more and more of the substance to get there, and it could be destroying your body from within and destroying your relationships and destroying your life. And yet for those who fall far into addiction... It doesn't matter. It's only the next high that they're looking for. And that is essentially what sin does in our lives. And it may not be as evident or as clear to others around us. We get good at hiding it. But that is what sin is in our lives. It is this slavery, this addiction to trying to provide fulfillment and joy for ourselves instead of seeking it from God. So as we seek to overcome it, we need to look and see what Scripture tells us 
Is it just trying to be better? Is it trying to be good? Trying to, to follow the rules? Or is there some greater pathway out there for us to follow? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we go to your word this morning, Lord, be with us. Lord, help us to understand the things that you have told us and that, that we can grow as believers in your Son through them. That we can, we can experience the life that, that you want us to experience. The life that is centered on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start this morning in John 8 and look at, at Jesus' words there. As we look at this, this part of the power of the resurrection, that we need to see that because of Jesus' victory over death, that we have power over sin. I believe that's what he's showing here in John 8. I'm going to start in verse 12 before we jump down later to what he was talking about there, being a slave of sin. In verse 12, it says, Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Interesting, I and mean, this is very similar to John 1, where it describes Jesus as the light of the world, but the world did not want the light. Jesus describes himself here as the light of the world, and those that follow him won't have to walk in the darkness, but they will have his light. It's interesting, this this statement of his is following the altercation that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees where they bring the adulterous woman to him and say, what should we do? And they were hoping that Jesus wouldn't say stone her so then they could accuse Jesus of not following the law. And you most likely remember Jesus got down on the ground and started writing in the dirt. And most people think that he was writing the sins of all those who were accusing this woman. And so in dealing with sin, Jesus then describes himself as the light. That if sin is dwelling and reigning in the darkness, then Jesus is the antithesis of that. He is the light. And those who are following him will possess that light. They themselves will be the antithesis to darkness. In the verses that follow this, Jesus is asserting his authority, his oneness with the Father. He is again telling them who he is. And then we get to verse 31, and he changes paths, but along the same discussion topic. I guess it doesn't change paths. He changed who he's addressing. He's been talking to the people that, that are arguing with him about who he is. And then in verse 31 says, so Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed him, and so this is a different group of people, those who were there who had believed, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So again, this is... Jesus has changed here, and he is addressing those who have believed in him. In the book of John, 
whenever it describes a group of people that they have believed in Jesus, he's describing a group of people who have eternal life. That people that have come to a saving faith in their Messiah. And Jesus is encouraging them to continue in his word. That to follow him and continue in his word, the things that he is teaching them, and they are becoming disciples of him. You think of Jesus' word, what it means to continue in his word, that the thing that he stressed repeatedly in John to his disciples was bearing fruit. And that through his life, as, as John brings out in John 1, that, that Jesus showed us who God is, that Jesus lived his life being the essence of grace and truth, and that he was, he was loving the world the way that God, only God could. And yet he was God's truth, God's essence in this earth. And he came to serve us. And if we are to become more like him, if we are to try to continue in his word, it is becoming a life of loving others, of caring more for others than ourselves, of serving others. To continue in his word is to follow him as those who literally had the opportunity to follow him. And he wasn't telling anyone that came with him to, to be perfect, but he was saying, give up the things that you hold dear and care for others, serve others, share my truth with others. And he says there that if they do that, they will know the truth. And I think that, that knowing the truth is this greater thing that, that Jesus had and that these people were living under the law, were raised in a system by their parents who were raised by their parents for generation after generation after generation that had skewed the law instead of a way to to show God to those around them and to have an opportunity to be right with God and point to their need for a Messiah, they had skewed it to, look how good we are. I can do all these things. And yet Jesus is giving them this greater truth of God's love and his grace and of loving others. That if the two greatest commandments are to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, if that is God's heart behind the law, then I think this is knowing the truth. And the truth will make you free. It's interesting, free free from what? John has told us just before that, at the beginning of Jesus' addressed there to these people that these are people who have believed this is not freedom from eternal damnation this is freedom from living in sin that if you live into the jewish system of the law and are trying to please god in that you are you are not living in god's truth you're not living in what he is wanting for you that the the scribes and the Pharisees that come to him at the beginning of chapter 8 are so concerned with their perfection in God's law and trying to trap Jesus because Jesus was a threat to their way of life. And so as Jesus 
turns here and addresses those who have believed in him, he is offering them a different and better way. The way that the Father has sent him to provide. Verses 34 and 35 then. Jesus answered them, well, again, 33 there, the, you know, similar to, to Nicodemus and the woman at the well that where Jesus is talking about something spiritual and the listener takes it very physically and they, you know, free from what? We're not slaves. And so then Jesus explains what he's talking about spiritually here and the freedom that he's offering in verse 34, when it said, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So Jesus is turning them back to the spiritual reality of what he is talking about. I'm not talking about being a slave to an earthly ruler. I'm talking about being a slave to sin. That if you are trying to please God on your own, you will never get there. And that if you are living in sin, it just becomes a greater and greater burden on you. That those shackles grow ever heavier. That you are never able to escape that. And then he says there in 35, that the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And I think what he's pointing to there is it's like what we looked at in... Romans 5, that, that sin and death had had this long reign, but Jesus was saying that when the Son remains forever, that, that He was going to change that. That the end of that was here, and it was forever going to be there. So then verse 36, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And this is a freedom from, from sin. To those who have believed in him for eternal life, he is telling them to follow his commandments, to follow him, to truly be his disciple, and they will experience the freedom that he is offering. I go back to, to Romans 5 and continue to look at, at Paul's explanation of this. I'm going to start again in 16. And as Paul is, is looking at sin coming into the world through Adam and how death reigned through sin, and Jesus came and changed that. Verse 16, he says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand... <coughs> excuse me. But on the other hand... The free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. About a year ago, I did mention this in another sermon on Romans 8, and I've, I've talked about it a couple other times, but it's important here in understanding, and I think it, it sets up really where Paul is going in, here at the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 and 7, and there at the beginning of 8, the first half of 8. We're saying, well, because of Adam's sin, or the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So the, the one who sinned brought this sin into the world, and we are all born with this propensity to sin. And it is true in every one of our lives. And that has been passed from Adam onto 
every single one of his descendants, and every single one of his descendants has lived in death and experienced death. And he says there, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So what I brought up before, and I want to point out here again, is where Paul says that the judgment arose from a transgression resulting in condemnation. Uh, in the English language, judgment and condemnation are, are very, very similar. Um, to condemn someone is to, to judge someone. In the Greek, the word for condemnation is krima, which is the one that we have in here in the NASB as, as judgment. And so if you're reading through that, and you have on the one hand, the condemnation arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The word second there that is used condemnation is katakrima, which is taking the Greek prefix kata, and which means through, and adding it to krima, so it's through condemnation. And so what, what is he saying there? That from this one transgression, we have condemnation. We have the guilty verdict. We have the judgment. And from that, you have catacrima. Rely on people a lot smarter than me with Greek to try and explain again that... Uh, Moulton and Milligan's dictionary on the Greek New Testament, it, on this word here, it says it follows that this word does not mean condemnation, but the punishment of following a judicial sentence. There is no adequate antithesis between crema and catacrema, for the former never suggests a trial ending in acquittal. If catacrema means the result of crema, the penal servitude from which Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ Jesus, are delivered represents the restoration of the criminal, the fresh chance given to him. And so what he's basically saying, he calls it a penal servitude. I think my attempt to, I never use that phrase in, in common language, but think of it like a prison sentence, that because of Adam's sin, that we are all born in, in this state of judgment that in our lives is lived out like we are in prison to sin. Or as Jesus described it, slaves to sin. That it is binding on us. And so the gift that Jesus gave isn't like that. Because of that one sin, judgment arose from that sin, from that transgression, resulting in this prison sentence. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. But Jesus has provided a, a new way, a way to be released from that prison sentence. That if to be justified is to be declared not guilty, but you go on living in the prison cell, then the, the justification has no bearing on your actual experience of life, if that makes sense. 
Verse 17, 4. By the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Again, he's, he's pointing to this new and better way of, of not being locked into that sin, to that penal servitude or, or prison sentence. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. The use of condemnation there in 18 is again catacrima. So it again resulted in this prison sentence to sin for all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life. You could say they're sourced in life to all men. That Jesus is giving us this new life, this power over sin. And again here, throughout this whole thing, he has argued that, that because of sin, that death was reigning in the beginning, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it. It reigned from Adam to Moses, even when there was no law, and it continued. And in Paul's way of thinking here, as you see in 724 and again in, in 8, that when a lot of times there, when he's talking about death, he isn't just talking about the physical death that we will all experience, but that to live in sin is literally to live out the experience of death that it is separation from God and that, that Jesus has given us a new and better way that he has overcome that for us and that we are able to live in life, that we have justification sourced in life. Continue there. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous. And it's on the basis of that righteousness that we get when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we believe in Him as our Messiah, that we believe in the promise of eternal life that He made, that through His death, burial, and resurrection, that we are made whole, that we then get the power to overcome death. The law came in so that the transgression would increase but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And these are, are beautiful truths of what Jesus did for us. Again, is this, this week in preparing for Easter that everything that Christ went through was for us. And this is the opportunity we have. As believers in Him, we have eternal life. We are, are possessors of eternal life. When we die, we will be with our Lord, and we will be with Him forever. But when Jesus said in John 10.10b that He came to give us life, and life abundantly, that is something that we need to lay hold of. And to take that abundant life in Him. That as Jesus explained, that, that this comes through following Him. Through following His Word. 
through becoming more like Him. That's what it was to be a disciple. To become more like your teacher. And that through that comes this, this new life. Paul continues in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I describe sin as spiritual insanity. Paul thinks that this is the most insane thought ever. That if you have been given this key to the, the prison door, that you no longer have to be a slave to sin or in prison to sin, why would you ever choose to live in it? That is the most ridiculous thing ever. Certainly not. May it never be. And he likens us to, through our faith, that we have been joined to Christ in what he went through. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised through the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That we might walk in newness of life. During the time of our Lord's Supper, I read there in Ephesians 2, and what Paul is saying to them, he's describing how they used to walk. Not only their position as enemies of God in sin, but that in that position as enemies, that they walked as children of wrath. And he says, but God. That God has given them this new opportunity to be followers of Jesus Christ and experience a new and different life because of their faith in him. Paul goes on through Romans 6 explaining to them the, their position and the usefulness of the law and, and where we are with sin in Jesus Christ. And then in 7 he explains his own dealings with this. And when he, he says that he does the things he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things he wants to do He's not dealing with uh, something that, that we might think of there that it's like he's struggling with, with lust or with anger or with one of these sins that is, can corrupt our minds or even be seen in our actions. But what he's describing there is his trying to live out a life pleasing to God through everything that he was raised in, in being a Jew and trying to please God through his own efforts, and trying to, trying to be right with God because of his actions, and not based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. So then he gets to 724, and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And again, this is Paul's way of explaining that to live like that, to live and try to, to please God is to live for myself, and it leads to this experience of death. That I'm not experiencing life if I am dwelling in sin. Even if that sin is well-intentioned and trying to, be, trying to be good on my own account, I end up like the Pharisees that Jesus called whitewashed tombs. And you may look good on the outside, but on the inside you know that something isn't right. And you're constantly living a lie, and Paul describes that kind of life as death. 
and who will deliver me from this body of death? 725, then thanks to be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And Jesus has given us this new opportunity. And then in verse 8, verse 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, the condemnation there is the catechrema. There is no prison sentence to the sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if you are in him, and as he goes through there in the following verses and walking in the Spirit, that you are free from that. It's very similar to Ephesians or Galatians 5, I'm sorry. This walking in the Spirit, this living in faith, this becoming more like Jesus Christ, that it is providing us the, the power over sin that Jesus Christ is offering us. That He has given to us when we have believed in Him. One of my favorite verses, verse 11 there of chapter 8. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We are promised that life, that different experience of this time on earth. That we don't have to go through this life with that emptiness inside of us. That emptiness created by our need to worship God that is never filled through worshiping ourselves. And we set rules in front of us and say that I'm a good person because I don't do this, this, and this, and I do do this, this, and this. And that if I'm trying to please God in that way, I will always know the truth. And I will never feel His joy or His life. But if I am walking in the Spirit, as Paul talks about there, that I am living my life based on the grace that I have been given. If I am following Jesus the way He tells us to, John 8, and truly His disciple, then I am going to experience a different kind of life. A life that is full of joy through serving others. A life that is full of joy through His Word. A life that is full of joy through Christian fellowship and love that isn't possible without the Spirit. And these are the things that God wants for us. He wants these things in our life for us to have these wonderful things and because they bring glory to Him. They show the world around us that there is hope. There is something better there is something different. Easter isn't just about bunny rabbits and eggs. That the perfect Son of God died on a cross for the world so that you could have eternal life and you could live a different life right now. And Again, this, this comes through becoming more like Jesus and in our small group, we've been going through the book of Colossians. And the author of the book we're reading, I thought had a really interesting way of, of putting, he's talking about a lot of these very same things. And the life we are living and how, how can we have a new and different life. 
And he's been talking a lot about outside change versus inside change. And he used, he had a great example, so I'm going to steal it. He said that when he was in high school, he had this car that was absolutely falling apart. That there was problems with the engine. That it would misfire and sometimes barely run. And the starter was going out. And the shocks on it were blown. And the, the steering was wonky. And one of the windows wouldn't roll down. But a friend of his wanted to get into painting cars, and so he bought all this equipment to paint cars, and before he charged anyone to paint their car, he wanted a test subject. And so he offered this guy a free paint job. And so then he was driving around in this shiny car, but it still had all those problems. <laughs> and he describes that, that we can live lives that, that on the outside may look good to other people, but they're still experiencing all of those same issues that his car was. His centering a lot of this around Colossians 3, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, similar to how Paul talked about there in Romans 6, that because of our belief in him, we have been crucified with him and raised with him, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I mean, that set my mind on those things. That I'm not setting my mind on how good of a person I think I am that I am focused on God's Word and what God wants, that I am focused on fellowship with other believers, that I am focused on prayer, and that I am focused on taking the spiritual gifts that God has given me and using them to build up His body. And that in all those things, if that's where my focus is and on God and His glory and glorifying Him through my life, then those questions of morality and how other people see me is going to flow naturally from me instead of being a sham. Instead of being something that leads to emptiness, that morality that comes out of my life is going to be a morality that brings joy. Set your mind on things above. Jesus came that we might have abundant life. We need to lay hold of that. As we celebrate Easter this week, we don't just thank him for eternal life, for the hope that we have, but we thank him for the life that we can experience right now.